Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles individuals who are passionate about what they do for a living, about what organization they belong to, or simply passionate about the community they are a part of. Hello there and welcome. My name is Dave Cunningham. In this episode, we speak with someone passionate about youth programs to start with and is currently the chair of the United Way Board of Directors. His name is Darren Dugo. Darren, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. We are going to talk about a few different things, uh, one roof in particular and the United Way's uh, generous contribution to that particular program and the big building that's uh, going to be put together in the not-too-distant future. But I want to go back to uh, your interest in working with youth, and that started with the Youth Diversion Program as a volunteer when you were here at Queen's as a student, correct? Yeah, that's right. Actually, I uh, was in my second or third year uh, looking to pursue a degree in criminology, a postgraduate degree in criminology, and thought I should get some experience. So I, I pulled out this thing called a telephone book, and looked in the yellow pages and, and found this little organization called Youth Diversion and started volunteering as a mentor with a, with a high-needs young person, an indigenous youth from uh, Tananago Mohawk Territory. And, and uh, him and I, coincidentally, continue to converse some 35 years later. But uh, that's what started me on my path to Youth Diversion. What was it that drew you to that particular um, interestingly enough, my original goal was to, to go through the law school, um, and I had a bit of a day of reckoning just when I was preparing for the LSATs and, and um, couldn't wrestle my head around the ethical dilemma of defending a guilty person and thought rather than focus on that part of the legal uh, aspect of criminology that I would focus more on the prevention and early intervention and, and focus on how to keep people from victimizing other people in our community. So you did your undergraduate degree here at Queen's and then decided to do a master's. Yeah, it was actually, uh, so I did an undergraduate degree in, in, uh, the, in the Faculty of Arts and Science, and, and it, was called, it was a special field concentration in psychology and sociology at that time. And then uh, started a youth diversion program, worked uh, for a few years, and then wanted to talk to grown-ups again, spending all my days talking to kids and then spending my nights talking to my own children at home. I wanted to spend some quality time with grown-ups, so I did a part-time master's degree in education at the Faculty of Education. What was the thesis that you put together for your master's? Uh, it was all about um, school suspensions. and the po At that time in the, in the mid-'90s, there was a real push by the uh, provincial government to... Um, invoke what was called a zero tolerance policy towards violence in schools. And in my work at Youth Diversion, we saw a very clear connection between kids' criminality and school failure, um, and in particular, kids who were pushed out, thrown out, um, or left school. And looking at the policies that that government implemented at the time, um, it was very clear that those policies would continue to push the most vulnerable populations out of the school system. And so after you finished your master's program, I think you decided to, or Queen's asked you to put together a course? Yeah, it was actually after the defense, my, my graduate thesis, I was approached by a couple faculty members at the, at the Faculty of Education that asked if I would um, teach one of their courses on at-risk youth. And for me, it was a natural progression in my career. Um, I started working with kids as a, as a caseworker. Then I was executive director, so I was managing an organization. 
And then teaching at the faculty gave me the opportunity to encourage teachers to reach out to the most vulnerable kids in their classroom, the ones that you typically send to the office, mm-hmm. um, and try to engage them in a successful, meaningful way that would, would lend them the opportunity to be successful in education as well. What sorts of things would you do with the teachers to give them some hints on how to work with the kids in that situation? A lot of it was strength-based stuff. A lot of it was just different strategies and techniques um, that worked well with young people, especially complex young people that were dealing with a a multiplicity of, of negative factors in their life. So it would be a lot of it was around understanding, uh, understanding what was going on in kids' lives, best practices in responding, uh, alternative teaching strategies, um, teaching outside the box sort of thing. And, and classroom man- a huge part of it was classroom management outside the box. So mm-hmm. you know, recognizing that, that sending a kid to the office isn't a win for anybody. It's not a win for the teacher. It's not a win for the student. It's certainly not a win for the, the administration of the school. Now, when you graduated from Queen's and you started working for Youth Diversion Program, uh, the program has expanded quite considerably since you started. Yeah, when I started at Youth Diversion, it was a, a one in a one point two person organization, um, and now I think it's it's over a million dollar program. It's one of the largest um, youth serving uh, organizations in the city, with probably twenty plus staff now, uh, serving well over twelve hundred kids a year. Now, do you see that as a plus or a minus? I mean, are you looking at the fact that you are the program is opened up to a lot more kids and you're helping a lot more kids, or there's just more kids who are having issues? Well, it's a really good point, and I, and I think it's both. Yeah. Um, in the first place, when I started at Youth Diversion, it was an organization that was very reactive, primarily reactive to kids that were getting in trouble with the police. And it was done. It was an organization that was started by a local judge um, who saw too many kids coming through his courtroom in the late '60s and early '70s, um, and worked very closely with the police. But it was always that reactive. And and when they brought in the mentoring program that I was involved in, uh, that was a little bit of prevention. It was focusing more on helping kids. But again, the kids that were identified to that program were kids that were in trouble. Over the years, the organization has really embraced a, a prevention and early intervention model. Um, so we developed some school-based programs in conjunction with the Limestone District School Board and the Algonquin Lakeshore Catholic District School Board that were really designed to be preventative. So getting kids that were starting to experience some, some school problems and to reach out to them and support them so that they maintain their connection to the learning process. Um, and then other programs that, that uh, started were, were focused on pure prevention. So we, we developed a program here called Rebound that we took into schools. And it was all about getting, giving kids the skills that they needed to make different decisions, focusing on a, what we called a cognitive behavioral approach. But it was essentially giving kids the tools to make different choices, different decisions when they were faced with some of the complex issues that kids are faced with. Do you help? with respect to academics when you're doing your programs, or how does that work? Well, the, uh, the wonderful thing about both the, the Algonquin Lakeshore Catholic District School Board and the, and the Limestone District School Board is with the one program that we developed in the early 90s, it was an alternative to home suspension. So if you think about a kid who gets in trouble at school, they end up being sent home, you know, for three days, five days, up to 20 days, and then potentially expelled depending on the behavior. And what that does is it completely removes them from learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's punitive. It's it's based on a punishment model. When we developed the alternative to home suspension program, which is now called SNAP, um, it was all about keeping kids engaged. So both school boards always put uh, a teacher uh, attached to the program, not full time, 
but a teacher there so that kids could continue to learn while they were suspended. So the Youth Diversion Program staff would work on all of those softer skills designed to help kids make different decisions when they go back to school. So if they were angry, upset, couldn't cope with anxiety, depression, whatever they were dealing with, that when they went back to school, they had some skills that would allow them to act differently when they were faced with those same kinds of challenges and at the same time keep up with their schoolwork. So the schools saw the value in it and continue to this day um, to see the value in providing support to those kids when they when they have to be removed from school. Now, you have retired from the Youth Diversion Program, correct? That's right. I retired from both the Youth Diversion Program and from the Faculty of Education where I taught for 20 years. So. Do you keep in contact, other than the, uh, the fellow that you mentioned at the beginning, the fellow from Tyandonega, do you keep in touch with any of the other students that you may have run across over the years? Uh, I don't keep in touch with them intentionally because it would be wrong. Um, but I can tell you that that the um, incidental contact is fantastic. Kingston's a small town, yeah. and it it goes almost never a week where I don't run into somebody that went through the Virgin program, whether it's a kid on the street that just happens to recognize me or um, I've done presentations at businesses and, and workplaces where staff have come up to me afterwards and said, do you remember me? I was at St. Lawrence College uh, doing a United Way presentation to a senior executive group, and one of the senior executives was a client that had gone through youth diversion. So, uh, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I'm doing great. Thank you. I had one young, you know, not young man, he's probably mid-40s now, but uh, just a couple of years ago, he came up to me in a restaurant, stopped at the table. I recognized him, and uh, he stopped, and he, he asked me if I recognized him, and I did, and and he said, I just wanted to tell you that you saved my life, and thank you. I mean, those things are, I mean, that's what you do it for, right? Mm-hmm. And to that's see, your passion. Yeah, yeah, and to see that, it takes a long time sometimes for kids to wrap their heads around where they're at and where they've been and, and to get some success in their life. But when you see it, I'll tell you, it's worth, it's worth the 30 years that you put into the organization. Mm-hmm. Just one of those. Yeah. And I've had tons, so. That's great. Can you give me a sense as to what the state of youth homelessness is these days? Well, I think, uh, I mean, youth homelessness is one of those things in a city like Kingston, which isn't very obvious sometimes. I mean, we see kids that, that are panhandling on the streets or or that seem a little unkempt at some of the businesses and that downtown. But when you compare it to large cities where people are sleeping on the streets, you just don't see it. Mm-hmm. It's very hidden. Um, a lot of it's uh, kids that are either homeless completely, living off off-site could be intense in in some of the parts of the city uh, but also in in what I would call precarious housing situations where they're you know going couch to couch sometimes on friends places or living in exploitative relationships um, specifically for housing where kids are homeless and end up in an exploitative relationship to keep a, a roof over their head and and it is a complex, um, complex problem in Kingston. The United Way's done some great work on on identifying. They do a time and count, uh, time, time count every uh, every year or two, just to kind of assess what the situation is. And and there's a lot of young people that are homeless. A lot of female young people that are homeless, uh, which is is as concerning as the males, obviously. But it's um, it is a struggle. Tr- troubling situation in Kingston. Um, a lot of it stems from family conflict um, where parents and, and kids just don't get along. Kids' lives are a lot more complex than they ever have been. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, with the 
with the degree of social media influence and and the accessibility to to a variety of different substances that you know 30 years ago they wouldn't have even known about let alone known where to access and been able to access and i think the complexity uh, you know the recognition of significant mental health issues um emerging in youth um and where they may or may not be diagnosed and uh, and oftentimes kids are self medicating um, not effectively. They think it's effective, but they're not not effective, and they end up um, burning bridges at home, getting thrown out or pushed out by family, or leaving. And then, you know, for the average Kingstonian to find a, a rental property um, is, you know, virtually impossible for for the average working person. Mm-hmm. For somebody who has all of those complexities in life, then you add poverty. Um, it's almost impossible to find a place for them to live. Now, one of the reasons why I invited you here was because of your role with the United Way and the recent announcement about the One Roof expansion. And you have uh, sort of gone into partnership, at least the United Way has, with home-based housing. And can you describe for us and for our listeners who may not be aware of just what home-based housing is? Well, my, my commitment to the United Way has been as a long-standing. First of all, when I was at Youth Diversion, we were a member agency, so we received funding from United Way. But I've been a long-time donor, and, and I've been a board member and currently the chair of the board. And, and it's really an organization that not only raises money and spends money in the community and, and helps agencies, but it, it builds capacity. And it, it, it's an agency that is all about making sure that our community supports its most vulnerable people. So the the One Roof uh, project ha- started a couple of years ago, and it was an idea of bringing agencies together under one roof um, to support young people in a place where young people were comfortable. So we've got some, you know, 30 or 40 amazing youth organizations in this community, but they're all located in various spots, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a good idea to have them all housed in one building. But what One Roof does is it brings the workers – together in that space where kids have have created a a certain level of safety and the workers attend at various times, staggered times, um, and provide their services right where the kids need them. So this is not necessarily a headquarters for all of these agencies. It's just a spot where they all can gather. That's right. Okay. Okay. So there has been a one roof on Barry Street, correct? Yeah, uh, home base housing opened the the one roof uh, a couple of years ago, just on Northbury Street, a couple of three blocks north of uh, Princess Street, in a kind of right around the Skeleton Park area. So it's a right. it's quite a ways away from the downtown, away from uh, major transportation routes. Now uh, we didn't really answer the question about home base housing and what do they do. Let's start with that. Uh, home base housing is an organization I'm familiar with because they've served lots and lots of young people and young adults in this community. They have done some amazing work around homelessness reduction and prevention, uh, as well as creating home homes for people. Uh, they've created some great uh, supportive housing and independent living uh, resources around the city for adults, but also for kids. One of their most successful projects a few years back was the acquisition of a large um, property where multiple kids could live called Rise 149, um, where it's basically a supportive housing environment for kids that are transitioning out of home, out of their parental home or familial home and into independence, but they're not quite there yet. So they need that little bit of a, a support along the way. And then Homebase does a lot of prevention work as well, works with other agencies to try to keep kids in their homes uh, when it's safe and appropriate to do that and, and to try to get them housed when it's not. 
before we started recording the program, you and I were talking and you described the move from Barry Street to Princess Street and what it really means in terms of the one roof complex. Yeah, one roof is quite a small uh, building on on Barry Street, and uh, one of the things that uh, the staff there, there's one staff that that I'm familiar with, Ashley O'Brien, and then the, the staff from the agencies have recognized the increased complexities that these kids have, and the lack of accessibility that they feel that they have to the to the mainstream services. So you look at at psychiatric care, for example. You know, for a young person to access psychiatric care, they're either going to go to an emergency room or they're going to go to the family doctor, get a referral if that's possible. And a lot of these kids simply don't have family doctors. So to make those kinds of clinical services available to kids meant a, a strong partnership with, uh, with the medical community, including that at Queen's. Um, but one roof simply doesn't have the physical plant necessary. So mm-hmm. home base uh, housing found an opportunity to acquire a building on Princess Street the old Princess Street United Church, and proposed to the United Way that they would move one roof from its Berry Street location to uh, to Princess Street United Church. And the United Way Board of Directors and, and a working group met with the Home Base Housing Board and and talked about a lot of different issues and at the end of the day um, committed over $400,000 for that renovation and that move, recognizing that it's a resource that this community needs and that can be sustained um, for as long as it's needed in the Kingston community. What's the relationship between home base housing and Princess Street United Church? I'm not sure how it started, um, but I know that the congregation at Princess Street United Church um, recognized that it was an aging congregation and, and the numbers were dwindling. And they saw the, the sustainability of the church in question. And they wanted to maintain the building. It's a, quite an old building. And they wanted to maintain it as a community resource. And I think home base housing negotiated with the congregation and ultimately probably the United Church of Canada to to acquire the church at a very reasonable cost um, with a commitment to not only allow the congregation to continue to meet as it needs to, but also to transform the buildings, and there's multiple buildings on the site, but the, to transform the site into a, a resource for the most complex, most needy young people and young adults in our community. That whole neighborhood is changing quite dramatically as you drive down Princess Street. Does that play into this at all in terms of what influence it might have? Or, Well, David, what, what really sold me uh, as a board member on the idea of the, the move to Princess Street was that it, it puts the needs of young people in our community's eyesight. So when you locate any kind of program for complex uh, people with complex issues and people with challenges, if you move them away from the main street, then then it's not an issue. It, it's an invisible issue. And I think by by putting it right on our main street, right on a very vibrant community, the Williamsville community, it's actually an area that I grew up in when I when I was younger. Um, and it's a growing community. And to recognize that that the kids that will utilize one roof and the kids that utilize the transform Princess Street United Church and and the services that Home Base will provide there. Um, deserve to be on our main street. Mm-hmm. There are kids and there are young people and young adults and, and we need to be reminded that they need our support and that we need to create the, and support the resources that they need to be successful. Do you have any sense as to the timeline for the construction of the expansion? Well, I know with one roof, the move we want to happen before summer. Um, and then with some of the other plans, that, that Homebase has some very exciting plans, um, which include some residential units, but also includes lots of community space and, and, again, space that's going to engage 
people in supporting young people. Um, and I think that they're taking it from a very considered approach. So they're, they're going slow. As you can imagine, in, in any community, it takes a lot to, to walk through the building process and renovation process. Princess Street United Church is also a historical building, um, so there, and there's a commitment to the congregation to maintain some of its character as well. So it's it's going to be a staged process. One roof we, we expect to see in there by the summertime, um, and then the rest of the, the project, which is um, quite ambitious, uh, will probably be phased in over the following one to five years. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about this whole project is the fact that we hear conversations about uh, donating to the United Way and for a particular cause and we want to take this money and allocate it to the youth in our community and you can say that but it's really important to have something concrete that you can point to when you raise money good point and and it really is a legacy project one of the commitments that our board made at the United Way was it the money that was raised through the the rock and the big house concert in Kingston one of the largest concerts ever held in Kingston uh, in terms of, of appeal, um, that those funds would go directly back to a youth, but also especially on um, preventing and reducing homelessness. It's one of the things that, one of the issues that, that the United Way of KFLNA has recognized as, as a critically important, right? It's, these are kids that if we maintain them in safe um, housing and support them with the complex needs that usually get them kicked out of housing, then they're going to be more likely to be successful, um, successfully engaged in our community, and and be um, be more successful as members of our community. So, it's always been that commitment that the United Way has to to reinvesting. Right? It's not about raising money; it's about reinvesting and building the capacity that our community has to support young people and and adults as well. And I would guess that the board is anxious to figure out what the federal government and all the other agencies are going to do with the pen that generates a fair amount of money for this cause as well. Yeah, I mean, Corrections Canada and St. Lawrence Parks Commission and the City of Kingston have all been fantastic partners with the United Way uh, through the KP Tours and through Rock and the Big House. And and, uh, yeah, there's... Lots of questions. It is a resource that, that the federal government owns and I'm sure would like to divest itself of at some point. But in the meantime, it's doing some great things for the Kingston community. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's great. We have run out of time on the program, and I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come down and talk to us. Well, thank you very much, David. Theme music for the program is Stasis Oasis, a tune written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of our episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian Podcast Facebook page. This is Dave Cunningham from Kingston, Ontario. Thank you for listening. Until next time.